Good Friday to you all. Romarinko, how are you? Good morning. Doing just a fine royal. You big Alan Jackson fan? I love Alan Jackson. He's good. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I got to say, Rob, the election night was so much fun. Uh, folks will remember uh, KBC had an election night party at the Smokehouse. Oh, we did. And you were there. Mm-hmm. Doug was not only there, he was dressed up as George Washington. Yes, he was. And Randy, you were there, and I'm thinking, I'm channeling Wizard of Oz. I was there with about nine beers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we cut it back to nine, have we? It, I'm trying was, to be conservative. it was an amazing night. I mean, people were going nuts. I think maybe the crowd was a little partial to Trump. Do you think uh, possibly there was I, a, a slight bit. bias? A or maybe bit. it was the, the alcohol that, that made people feel good. Mm-hmm. Those but, go one and the same, you know. I guess so. I guess so. But it, it was it was an amazing night. But, but Rob, you did a fantastic job. Uh, you were reporting. You were anchoring. It, it was, uh, I was eating uh, garlic cheese bread. Yeah. Oh, the smokehouse is the best. Oh, man. A- absolutely. So, uh, big news, Rob Marenko. Were you surprised about Sheriff uh, Baca's uh, hung jury uh, yesterday? You know, I had heard another talking head. As a matter of fact, it was you, Roy. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was talking about how the prosecution kind of had a tough road. Yeah. For a number of reasons. So, when I heard yesterday that the jury was deadlocked 11 to 1 in favor of acquittal, I thought, you know what? We heard something from Royal Oaks that sounded like there might be a mistrial and it wasn't going to be a slam dunk for the prosecution. So to answer your question, no, I was not surprised. You know, I don't like to predict mm-hmm. uh, these high-profile trials. I think it's kind of cheesy to say, you know, I'm going I'm going to have my crystal ball and be Nostradamus. Right. But if I were going to give you my prediction, I would have said I thought it would be about split. And so I was surprised when I heard the 11 to 1. I mean, it's Me kind too. of a, a reverse 12 angry men yeah, here, you know, yeah, yeah. Henry Fonda. Uh, but the idea that all these other guys would have been uh, convicted, uh, plea bargains, they're behind bars, and the big guy, he alone, they can't convict. Now, of course, it isn't over, as you were just reporting. There's going to be a hearing in January, and I think uh, Paul Meyer, a very esteemed criminal defense lawyer, uh, was talking to Ken Jeffries on your air a minute ago, and he was saying, you know, it's going to be a tough call for the prosecution to decide whether to go again. I don't know if I agree with Paul on that because I think prosecutors are so competitive and pugnacious and, you know, go get them. For the DA to say, or the U.S. attorneys to say, oh, well, you know, if that's how 11 out of 12 feel, then we'll just give up on it. I don't think that's going to happen. So I have a feeling they're going to they're gonna suck it up and they're going to say, let's have a second trial. But, you know, uh, the judge back in July, when he was presented with a plea bargain, the sheriff will go to prison for six months, he said, no way. That's not nearly enough. You know, yeah. it's more like a five-year deal. And the sheriff said, I don't think so. Let's roll the dice. So now they could go back to the drawing board because, I mean, this was the trial, you'll remember, Robert Marinko, where the defense didn't get to talk about Alzheimer's or dementia. Right. It was straight, you know, here's the sheriff. We're going to gun up and, and get you guys. If there's a second trial on whether he lied in 2013 to the federal investigators, that's when the defense gets to not only give all this evidence that you know, he didn't do anything, but also the poor guy was on the downhill slide mentally. So the prosecution, this is kind of a game changer for them. I don't predict they're going to give up, but you know there, there may be some settlement talks, and who knows, maybe they'll try to cut some kind of deal, something between uh, six months and five years just to put it behind everybody. So the uh, the inauguration uh, is is in the news also, Rob. I'm just wondering what your advice to poor President-elect is. Apparently, uh, 
Botticelli and other people are backing out. Well, uh, I heard this morning the Rockettes will be performing. Nice. So my suggestion is just make sure they, they keep the door locked to the, the uh, <laughs> dressing room. Yeah, that would be a safe thing to do. But <laughs> it's kind of weird that the idea that the president-elect couldn't get to some sort of high-flying axe. Maybe they ought to just play some old eight-track music. You, you know? know, it's funny you should mention that because Trump actually did have a comment, a tweet, in regard to the Hollywood celebrities. Right. And it was something like, well, they didn't do much for Hillary. So he's not really mm -hmm. courting them to be at the inauguration. You know, he's got a fair point there. Who really cares who's performing at the inauguration? He's performing. Exactly right. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the man of the hour. Yeah, but it's an ego thing, don't you think, Randy? I mean, Trump wants the idea of having a huge show and having some top uh, talent and so on. I think he likes the idea that he outdraws people like Jay-Z and Bruce Springsteen because they did, like Rob said, they didn't do anything for Hillary. Right, right, yeah. right. So I was so excited, guys, about uh, hosting here today because yes. uh, there was the chance we were going to get a guest. I mean, a I, I don't mean to, to drop names, but one of the top stars in the world. Really? Yes. I wasn't aware of this. Well, well, okay, Brian Cranston, all right. I mean, Breaking Bad. I don't know if you've seen Trumbo. He was amazing in that. Did all the way, the LBJ deal, not only on Broadway, but HBO. So so we, we put the feelers out, okay? And yes. the initial response was excellent. And uh, as a matter of fact, they actually went through Brian's wife, and they said, oh, KBC's incredible. She said, oh, yes, Brian would love to do it. He's so excited. Yeah. And basically, he's sitting around in his underwear, shaved his head, wearing the pork pie hat like Walter White, waiting for the phone to ring. And yes. you guys, she said, this is so incredible. We're going to be on. And then they mentioned, <clears throat> oh, well, it's it's like not Doug, actually. Royals oh. in for Doug. And she said, she said, let me put you on hold just for a oh. minute. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. She came back. Yeah. Yeah. She said, you know. He's just slammed. Oh. He is really oh. busy, well, and it's going to have to happen another time. That's so, not fair. Well, I, I felt a little bad because uh, I, I really think the guy is great. I mean, Malcolm in the Middle, did you ever see that sitcom? Yes, I enjoy Brian Cranston's work. He's a wonderful actor. And Read his book, A Life in Parts, and it's his memoir of his life. He actually grew up about a mile from where I grew up in Canoga Park, went to the same high school. And uh, his story is amazing. And you know how he got the part on uh, on Breaking Bad? No. He was in an episode of um, FX, you know, the David Duchovny, uh, Scully and Mulder uh, investigating uh, the paranormal. X-Files, yeah. X-Files, X-Files. So he was on an episode just as a bit player, like 15 years before Breaking Bad. And Vince Gilligan was involved in the show. He was the director or the writer or something. And he remembered... Uh, Brian Cranston. So now, 15 years later, they're casting Walter White for Breaking Bad, and Vince Gilligan says to the network boys, okay, I got a guy, uh, Brian Cranston, and they say, uh, you mean the goofy dad from Malcolm in the Middle? You want him to be the chemistry professor that turns into this meth kingpin? Yeah. And Gilligan says, yeah, and they say, no, no, we don't think so. Well, he fights and he fights, and he, he got the part. Thanks to just well, a random part 15 years before on X-Files. Look at that. Now, from Royal Oaks, we got an amazing story, a very enlightening. Almost like having an interview with, with Brian Cranston. Exactly. And you're not uh, you're not wearing your underwear. You don't have a shaved head. You don't have the hat from Walter. You, you did a fine job, Royal. Who needs Brian Cranston? It's kind of a surrogate interview. Exactly right.
You guys need some blue meth, uh, just let me know. <laughs> That's right, crystal blue. <laughs> 545 The Time, Talk Radio 790, KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, we're going to get the latest from our correspondent Steve Kastenbaum on breaking news. We've got the Malta jet hijacking. We've got the Berlin suspect uh, dead in Milan, Room so stay temp, tuned yeah. for that. 607 The Time on... Uh, Beautiful Friday. It may be rainy, but it's beautiful because we're heading into Christmas weekend, holiday season, uh, a fantastic time in Los Angeles. Good morning to you, Rob Marinko. Good morning, Royal. Hey, with the holidays upon us, we thank you for choosing 790 KBC for talk about the day's news with context and honesty from Southern California personalities you know and like. Count on Doug McIntyre, Peter Tilden, Dr. Drew and Mike Catherwood, and Julian Barbary and John Phillips, plus the NBC4 News crew for enlightening, irrelevant news and compelling, entertaining talk. News Talk Evolved, 790 KABC. So we are into the Trumpization period here, and uh, I, I still find it very strange that, that the Donald can't line up some some class a acts for the inauguration. Uh, you, you, you're not too worried that no, he's going to be no. able to put on a good show. No, I think it'll be a fine event. And you got the Rockettes high kicking. And what about Flat and Scruggs? You remember those banjo pickers from the Beverly Hillbillies? Yeah, maybe they're available. You know, if if, if the A listers. Oh, what a downer. Randy dead. Both of them. Maybe one of them is, is still around. I don't know. So uh, we got the transition uh, in full swing, and the latest battle, Rob Marinko, is over the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy has been a staple on cable TV. We've seen him, you know, he's right out of central casting with that, that Alabama accent, and, and he's so, he's so hardline on all the issues. Uh, but apparently there's some things in his past that people are going to try to bring up. Uh, allegedly... When he was with the U.S. Attorney's Office back in the 80s, uh, he referred to a, a former assistant U.S. attorney who is deceased now, Thomas Figures, who is black. Uh, it is claimed that Sessions called him boy, and that has been, that's been following Sessions around for a long time. I think he was up for federal judge, and even the Republicans voted against him back in the 80s. They just wouldn't support the guy. So it sounds like they're going to try to dredge that up and, in fact, uh, they've got a, another guy who was working at the time who was going to support Sessions. His name is E.T. Rollison, Jr. He was assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Alabama. Uh, High-profile guy. He got the conviction of a, of a KKK leader. He filed an affidavit this month saying he never heard Sessions say anything racist. He never called this guy boy. But it sounds like... There are going to be 150 outside groups that are mobilizing to to move against Sessions and try to block the nomination. Yeah, they can mobilize. Here's the thing. The Senate rarely eats their own, and I think that uh, Sessions will get through. It's just going to be a matter of going down a bumpy road for a little bit, and then they'll confirm him. I have to make it right. look like it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. pretty much. Sort of go go through the motions. Sure. Yeah. Well, this he only needs 51 votes to be confirmed, and because of the recent final election results, the GOP senators number 52. So they certainly have the have the votes to uh, to be able to get him through. And it's just going to be a matter, as you say, uh, of doing the due diligence and having people testify. And I imagine he'll do quite well for himself uh, when he's called upon to testify. I thought it was kind of strange the other day 
the John Kerry, you know, Mr. Windsurfer, Mr. Uh, going to break my hip again, uh, bicycling, uh, uh, a super liberal. He comes out in favor of Rex Tillerson, <laughs> yes. the Exxon CEO as that's, Secretary of State. That seemed to be a little surprising to most. Yeah, yeah no, I, th- I thought that was really peculiar. And, and of course, uh, there's been so much drama. I mean, the whole business about uh, Giuliani and Christie. I mean, that was a pretty weird episode where Giuliani was so publicly stumping for himself to get that coveted Secretary of State job. And then when apparently it wasn't going to work out uh, because Trump just felt like he had too much baggage or whatever, I mean, it's like he throws a temper tantrum and he takes himself out of the race for anything. I mean, he could have had, maybe he could have had the Attorney General job ahead of Jeff Sessions. Homeland Security sure. would have been a, a, you know, a rational choice. Yeah. All he wanted, though, was Secretary of State. And he said, if I don't get that, I don't want anything. Yeah, that was weird. And, and I thought that was kind of stupid for him to do that because it was almost like he was going over Trump's head. He was going public with the idea of what should be done. I would think that Trump really didn't like that. He probably resented the idea that Giuliani was maybe trying to turn the screws a little to get that job. But you had Kellyanne Conway doing the same thing, campaigning actively, openly against Mitt Romney, and now she's got a plum cabinet job. You're absolutely right, Randy. That was very weird that that she was on the jihad against Mitt Romney. I mean, here Romney is obviously somebody that Donald Trump is willing to consider. He sits down and has the, the fancy dinner and Trump invites the photographers. I mean, the very idea that Donald Trump, of all people, Mr. Thin-Skinned, you can't handle any kind of criticism, uh, the idea that he would reach out, extend an olive branch to the guy who called him a phony and a fraud, gave that high-profile speech that just totally went nowhere. I mean, Trump just kept, you know, rolled right on. I mean, that was very odd that there would be that kind of courtship. But as you say, it was even odder that you have his chief spokesman, Kellyanne and Conway, uh, coming out you know, against Mitt Romney. I think the person who's probably the happiest uh, about uh, the whole Trump thing is Kate McKinnon of Saturday Night Live. She does a killer <laughs> Kellyanne Conway. Well, she has such great job security. If Hillary won, she'd do Hillary oh, for yeah. four years. You're right. Since Trump won, she does Kellyanne Conway, and that's a fantastic impression. Yeah, very e- talented. Either very way, talented. either way, she she was in great shape. And, of course, I guess Alec Baldwin has some job security as well sure. because he, he does such uh, a, an amazing Trump. But I think, the, you know, the, the thing about the—, the The cabinet is that Trump is assembling people who, for one thing, there are so many billionaires involved. uh, People are wondering, you know, gee, what's what's the deal? Is it all they all going to be white or they all going to be billionaires? Hey, billionaires can't be bought. That's true. That's true. And that was the pitch that uh, Donald Trump was making before. Uh, And of course, when I say all white, of course, you've got Ben Carson. I mean, to me. If I were a you know Siamese twin conjoined at the head with somebody else, nobody I'd want more than Ben Carson to, to do the job, to, to separate me right. from Wilbur. Sure. But, I mean, to head up a three million person bureaucracy when yeah. he's never done anything like that before. And when he came out, you know, what, a, a few weeks ago and said he really wasn't qualified to do that, any kind of job to that extent and go into the... You know, into public office. Then it's a kamikaze mission. He's there to tank that bureaucracy the same way that uh, Rick Perry is going to tank the Department of Energy. Uh, Energy, right. yeah. Wasn't that a delicious irony <laughs> that that Rick Perry, who couldn't remember the three branches of the of the executive uh, branch of the government that he wanted to get rid of, he's now going to be running one of the three. 
Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe he can uh, maybe he can run it into the ground. I don't know. But it's uh, you know what's happening I think is that Trump is being more active, more proactive, more out there than just about any president elect in anybody's memory. And nobody can re- recall uh, usually president like you know they kind of do it behind the scenes they're a little deferential to the regardless of the party of the person they're replacing you know it's their time until january 20 but i mean trump you know he's been reaching out to china to, to taiwan and, and ticking off uh, communist china uh, it, it's really an unprecedented level of activity and the thing that, that is the glue that holds it all together for trump is twitter i mean this guy is absolutely in love with he's obsessed yeah. with social media and and communicating with people by means of Twitter. But well, he gets around the his hated uh, mainstream media. He goes right to the people through Twitter, and I don't see any signs that he's going to stop doing that anytime oh, no. soon. Especially after yesterday. Usually he uh, does a tweet storm. Yesterday was a tweet mushroom cloud. <laughs> <laughs> so the big news locally here in Los Angeles yesterday was the decision by the jury that they just couldn't decide in the Leroy Baca case. And... Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised about that because as the trial wore on, there was so much evidence that Leroy Baca was involved, uh, had uh, had communications constantly with the people who were guilty of the conspiracy, and yet 11 out of the 12 jurors just didn't see it. And I think the probably the big reason was, first of all, it's it's crept through to people that the guy is on the downhill slide mentally. Uh, people have heard about the Alzheimer's problem, the dementia, and so on. There was all the controversy in the publicity a few weeks ago when the judge said, okay, here's my compromise. We're going to have two trials, a trial about what he did in 2011, namely intimidating the FBI agent, conspiring and obstructing justice. And we're not going to have any evidence about his mental state in that case because that happened five years ago and there really isn't any solid evidence of mental uh, problems or impairments. Then we'll have a second trial about what he did in 2013 when he allegedly lied to the FBI about whether he was involved in the conspiracy. And that was the solution. So in the first trial, you thought, wow, Baca's in trouble. He can't put on the evidence about his mental state. And yet 11 out of 12 jurors couldn't agree. I mean, 11 said not guilty, only one person. And unfortunately, I don't know, if Rob, if there have been any uh, reports about this juror or any of the jurors talking, but it would be kind of fascinating to find out you know, what went on in the jury room when they're, and they're free to talk at this point. Yeah, I heard something from one of them that said out of a couple of hundred emails involving this particular case of, of uh, corruption that Baca was only copied on, on like two of them. And that was part of their deliberation was, that, well, how, how can the guy be such a great part of this conspiracy and intim- intimidating the FBI and investigators? If he's only copied on two emails, that's really the only evidence that connects him directly, you know. And I think that case. was the key. I think the jurors heard all of this stuff. They saw a lot of smoke, but there just wasn't a lot of fire mm-hmm. underneath it. Hey, the time is 618 here on Talk Radio 790-KABC. Let's switch gears because we're delighted to uh, have on the program Joe Ciricioni, president of the Plowshares Fund and author of Nuclear Nightmares. Joe, how are you today? Uh, all things considered, I'm doing quite well. Thank you. All right. Joe, tell us, help us explain, understand the situation. I thought we had a well, bromance, a bromance between Putin and Trump, and now we we see sort of rattling the nuclear sabers on both sides. Uh, help us understand this. That's one of the very odd things about this. So let let me catch you up. 
yesterday, morning Russian time, Vladimir Putin made a fairly traditional defense speech saying he wanted to strengthen all his nuclear forces, including the strategic rocket forces, so they could penetrate any possible U.S. missile defense system. Fine. A couple hours later, Donald Trump tweets that he wants to strengthen and expand, the key word is expand, nuclear capabilities. You have to understand, no U.S. president has expanded our nuclear arsenal since Ronald Reagan started cutting it. We used to have about 35,000 nuclear weapons. We're down to five. Every president, Republican and Democratic, has reduced that number. Trump appeared to be saying he wanted to go back up, appeared to be starting our arms race. His um, assistants, his Spokespeople walked that back in various interviews yesterday, but it was all very confusing. Today, he tells Mika Brzezinski on MSNBC's Morning Joe that, no, he meant what he said. Let there be an arms race, he says. So be it. We will pass them in every capability. So experts around the country, around the world, are stunned by this development, not just that he did it by tweet or by talking to a, in a casual conversation with a cable news correspondent, but that he actually seems to be saying, I would welcome an arms race. What we don't know is if he means it or is it this just some kind of negotiating chip, some kind of bargaining strategy. Isn't it the case probably, Joe, we're talking with Joe Cerisioni of uh, the Plowshares Fund, isn't it the case that this is all because we're dealing with somebody who is not sophisticated when it comes to nuclear policy, defense policy, and he doesn't realize that the history of the Cold War, the nuclear era, is that America, from Eisenhower through Reagan right to the present, really have had a clear objective to try not for unilateral disarmament, but to do something, some desperate attempt to minimize the the uh, the nuclear proliferation problem. Eisenhower had something called Atoms for Peace, where he mm-hmm. wanted to work toward both sides, reducing the size of their nuclear armaments. Ronald Reagan, for all him being portrayed as, as a cowboy and so on, worked very hard for eight years with Gorbachev and others to try to reach Reykjavik and, and SALT and so on, to try to cut down on the, 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 the volume in this, in this ridiculous race toward self-destruction. So it sounds like Trump just is not with the program and instead consistent with let's make America great again. That means we're stronger, we're bigger, we have more soldiers, we may have more sailors, we have nu- more nuclear bombs. Do you think it's, it's just him being sort of unsophisticated in, in terms of the ways of what America has been trying to do for the last 50 years? I would say that and, and combined with his supreme confidence. He feels that he's, as he tells us, a very smart man. And he doesn't need to have the, the daily intelligence briefings. He's taken very few of them. Uh, his advisors are a very strange lot. None of them are what you would call the tr- traditional na- national security advisors, with the exception of General Mattis, who's his uh, secretary of defense designate. But he doesn't really seem to talk to him all that much. So you have this combination of confidence and ignorance, which can be very dangerous. And it, we should note that the policies you just outlined have worked. There are fewer nuclear weapons in the world now. Things are not spiraling out of control. 
control. More countries have given up nuclear weapons and programs in the last 25 years than have tried to get them. We just struck a deal with Iran that, that, that rolled back and then froze that country's nuclear program. The biggest problem we have is with North Korea, but that's the last one. That's the last one of the rogue, you know, sort of out of control states, and they have maybe 10 nuclear weapons. We have 5,000. So his view of what the problem is is kind of out of whack with with reality and whatever strategy he's playing here this is not the way you deal with this as president by the way he's not president for another 30 days (laughs) i know it seems like he is yeah do you think he's acting like the president 30 days before he actually seems another break with tradition do you think joe cerisione that he's he likes the idea of being seen as a cowboy that he remembers the reagan era and, and that sort of put everybody off of their game and you know in the middle east and europe and so on. They didn't know what he was going to do, and, and Reagan sort of exploited that. I mean, in a way, he used that to to defeat the Soviet Union because they were convinced he was going to use Star Wars to to block their bombs, and then he'd kill the Russians, and that's why they bankrupted themselves. You think that's what uh, Trump is trying to emulate? Well, okay, so that's the best possible scenario. That's a, and I we don't know why, but offhand, I would say yes, he. This is his M.O. He likes to reopen closed issues in order to gain leverage in negotiations. He wants to be unpredictable. He seems to have a little bit of the Nixon madman theory. I will threaten massive catastrophe on you that only a crazy person would do. But this, when you're talking about nuclear weapons, this is a very dangerous game to play because there's more than one actor. And, it's, and in fact, there's more than two. We're not just talking about Putin who has responded fairly calmly to this so far, saying he doesn't want an arms race. China is watching this very closely. India, Pakistan, other nuclear-armed countries. If the two countries with the biggest arsenals, the U.S. and Russia, have over 95% of all the weapons in the world, if those two countries start talking about increasing their arsenals, what are they going to do? Here's the best-case scenario. Let me leave you with some hope that this is his game that what he really wants is good relations with Russia, and he's just preparing himself for negotiations. He could take a page out of the Reagan playbook and go negotiate a deal with Putin early next year that substantially cuts the nuclear arsenals of the two countries. Reagan cut them by 50%. You make that deal, everybody will forget about these tweets. Everybody will forget about the controversy, and you will go down in history as one of the greatest arms control presidents in history. That's the deal of a lifetime. Well, that's uh, hopefully where we're headed. Joe Ciricioni, president of the Plowshares Fund and author of Nuclear Nightmares. Thank you so much for joining us on this uh, rather important topic, I'd say. 625 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, and for Doug McIntyre. Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the freeways? 629 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, and for Doug McIntyre. Happy Friday to you all. Hey, Rob Marinko, uh, i got a quiz for you. Doug's always giving me a pop quiz. All right. I'm going to tell a joke in, in this story, okay. uh, and you have to tell me when, when the joke happens. You have okay. to spot the joke. It's like Finding Waldo. So here's the story. McDonald's, they've got this value meal. It's a couple of cheeseburgers, medium fries, soft drink, and uh, it costs a $5.99. All right. So, okay, fine, fine. Uh, if you bought all of those items separately and didn't say, "Oh, sir, I'd like the value meal," you'd pay thirteen cents less, five eighty-six. Okay. <laughs> now there's a class freaking action lawsuit filed over this. It's going to cost millions of dollars for everybody to litigate it for Wait, years. Wait, let me stop you. That's the joke. No, no, that wasn't the joke. No, oh. this is a class action over thirteen cents because I mean, who cares if they call it value? This suit is a crock. I mean, really, it is 
I say it's a croc. Ray Croc? Ray Croc. You got look it. At, look Very at good. That, huh? Rob look at won, that. won the prize. We're going to wow. figure out a prize for you. 5.30 or 6.30 time. Talk Radio 790 KBC. The prize is that Rob Marinko gets to give us the news. 6.39 the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks. Infratuck McIntyre. This free speech Friday. Is this a real person uh, singing? It's a Yogi Jorgensen. Yeah, exactly. I know. On, I mean, I've heard him eight or nine hundred times and I never get tired of hearing but I'm just wondering if it's a... Sure. I thought it was computer generated. They blast this you know? all through Ikea all the time. Oh, is that true? It's Swedish. Well, it sure makes sense, but I haven't been to Ikea for a while. Got a bad meatball, I think, a few years ago and just haven't been back. But, huh. uh, well, it's it's the season for wonderful love, for novelty songs. But it's also the season for spending. Uh, Rob Marenko, you big Amazon.com guy? I love Amazon. Oh, isn't it great? I it's mean, the it, most it, convenient thing in the world. I feel like I should go to a 12-step program because it's like from thought to socks on your desk – is 48 hours. 12-step programs on Amazon Prime are discounted this week, so it's <laughs> Good. terrific. I, I should look into that. Yeah. Well, uh, we've got Jason Moser, a friend uh, with Motley Fool, to help us uh, sort out the whole uh, holiday shopping syndrome. Jason, how are you? Well, happy Festivus, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> now, right. That's, that's a Seinfeld reference, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it is. And I guess this is something we could talk about all day uh, in regard to how much money you know people are spending and i guess um it, to me it's 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 fascinating right now to think about this because we have a situation where so many people in our country right now are spending i think a lot of money that you don't necessarily have and uh the the you know the national savings rate the personal savings rate is is at a, a very uh, not an all-time low maybe but but certainly uh, very low uh, at 5% or so uh, and then you look at the American households with credit card debt, and, and that number continues to creep up um, as as time goes on. So we do it, hear scary stories. A lot of these numbers. Yeah, Jason, we do hear scary stories about this, and yet, in spite of the the criticism of the recovery as being lame, it, nonetheless, we are kind of on the up upswing i i would think i mean since 2008 haven't we steadily gotten a little better year by year in spite of the fact the obama administration didn't exactly give us a a christmas gift of of good growth at any point but aren't we better off now than we were four six eight years ago uh and yet you're saying people aren't putting anything away yeah i feel better off i mean i think most people uh would would probably agree with that i think as time goes on generally speaking our economy as it goes through sorts of it's sort of ebbs and flows but but longer term, the economy generally just gets better. But I think what we're looking at is a situation where the cost of living continues to go up. And really, it keys into the point that you just made there and that, generally speaking, people are just not very good at saving. They just don't do a very good job of putting a little bit away. And, and I really this, – this goes all the way back to uh, how, how we're taught as children – to deal with money. And and so as a parent myself, I mean, I have 10 and 11-year-old girls, and we, we've been teaching them about saving and investing for five five years now. And I mean, our, our point is that you, you start teaching this behavior at a young age, they start getting a little bit of an understanding of how it works, and you get them started when they're young, because really time is our, our biggest asset when it comes to saving, preparing, investing. That time is essential. The longer that you have uh, the better, the more prepared you're going to be. Jason, go ahead, uh, Rob. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that you know maybe savings now is spending less. You know, you so often see 
in Royal mentioned Amazon, and we, we spend in different ways now, and we spend electronically. We have a different sense yeah. about going to the mall and going to a, a brick-and-mortar store. We, we just hit a couple of keystrokes, and we see savings like 60%, 70%. I think maybe that word in our brains, at least for younger people, means not putting something away so you never spend it. It's actually spending something but spending less than you could have spent. That's the savings. Yeah, there's a perception there at least, and I think it's it's interesting to see how a lot of companies will go throughout the year, um, and they'll, they'll offer sales and whatnot, and then come, uh, you know, Cyber Monday and and uh, and you know the entire holiday season where you feel like, okay, all of these things are on sale, yet the sale prices that they're presenting aren't really necessarily much different than the sale prices right. they, they've been presenting all year long. They just market it a different way. But but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's less cash today than really ever before. And so spending is really just a click of a button now, it makes it a lot easier. And uh, and I think that's something we at least have to consider uh, because it, it's just not the same type of uh, physical act as perhaps we grew up on. We're talking with Jason Moser, analyst with The Motley Fool. It's fool.com, F-O-O-L.com. You know, Jason, you made a good point about people not being taught and it's kind of sad, and not to broaden the topic too much, but you hear now that we're not teaching civics anymore, and as a result, you know, when uh, uh, when the the late night talk show hosts go out on the on the street for the man on the street interviews and ask the wacky questions and the not so wacky questions, people can't name the three branches of the government. Okay, we're not teaching it, and similarly, as you say, I don't think we're teaching the basics to people about savings, about you know what you need to put uh, aside, about Social Security and so on. And as a result, well, I mean, your, your website has got some interesting uh, figures about holiday spending, for example. Uh, average American spending 936 bucks this year. And, and you've got it broken down. About 18% of the population spends under 250 about 27%. During the holiday, we'll spend between 250 and 500. 23 percent spend 500 to a grand, and then 14 percent over a thousand dollars. But I think one of the points you you were making on your website is that people don't really plan; they don't really sit down and figure out how much they're spending. They just sort of impulse buy. Yeah, and they impulse buy at the end of the year, which means they generally are going to be running up credit card debt, and then they spend the rest of of the following year or years trying to figure out ways to pay that off. And so, I, I mean, I, I think there's a situation, we generally speak about debt and we think, okay, there are good forms of debt and bad forms of debt. Mortgage debt, for example, that makes sense. You need to have a roof over your head. But if you continue to live off of a credit card, well, that can get costly over time. So for people who have a, a regular paying job and a generally reliable income, it's okay to use credit as long as you understand how to use it. But but I think most people would benefit definitely from looking at the beginning of the year and thinking, okay, every month I'm going to put away 50, 100, whatever dollars in order to plan for this holiday season that's coming at the end of the year uh, so that when that time actually comes, boom, you've got it. On this issue about uh, Internet spending versus traipsing through malls, do you see any kind of trends? I mean, I can't imagine how brick-and-mortar places are actually going to survive over the years, and uh, especially since later on in the morning we're going to have a, a, a robotics and a driverless a car uh, expert on, and, and he's got an amazing factoid, and here it is. The, uh, the children born today 
will never drive a car in their lives. I mean, is that a stunning statistic? And if that's the case, I wonder if part of it is because, you know, the, the cars are driveless. But part of it is we don't need to drive places because you can have a drone delivering a pizza from Amazon anytime now. Well, technology has certainly made life far different than what I recall, uh, you know, 40 years ago growing up. And, and it's, I think, generally speaking, for the better. Um, yeah, I think definitely when you talk about companies like Amazon, for example, this whole bricks and mortar thing versus e-commerce, uh, e-commerce is such a major long-term trend that we look at as investors. Uh, Amazon is a business that we, we, we've recommended Amazon in a number of our services, and as a stock, it's done phenomenally well through the years, and it's something that we, we still recommend today. We think it's a wonderful long-term holding because Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, saw so early on the potential there in the internet and, and it was just a book company for so long and now i mean you can have virtually anything delivered to you at the drop of a hat and for and years so you know people the sort of the the head scratching or slash joke concept was how does amazon do it they're losing money or they're making virtually no money and yet everybody's talking about him bezos is on the cover of time magazine was he able to amass this enormous success just by having the the tiniest of margins and just sort of drawing people into the habit of of, of buying through a few clicks i think yes i think the short answer is yes and, and if in a sort of a quote that he's very well known for uh that we kick around all the time to full hq is jeff bezos says your margin is my opportunity and so a lot of companies that are out there focused on making sure they can maximize their profit margins. Uh, Jeff Bezos took a bit of a different tack in thinking, okay, listen, I'm building something out here that is playing into a greater, longer-term trend. He's thinking in terms of 10 and 20 years, 30 years down the road. He's okay foregoing that profit margin in the near term if it gives him the opportunity to continue to grow that top line, to grow those sales numbers, which then in turn gives him, gives him more opportunity to continue investing back into his business. And that really has been a sort of his modus operandi, so to speak, to this point. is just he's building a business where he continues to take share by growing that customer base. Amazon Prime now is almost uh, just a way of life for so many people. And, yeah, yeah. and so, yeah, he sees that as your margin is, is his opportunity. And, and, and as we see, he continues to build that network out. Amazon is becoming more and more profitable, and we know it's not just e-commerce, right? I mean, they run so much of what we know as the Internet today via Amazon Web Services, and that is a phenomenally profitable part, uh, profitable part of that business. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think really the sky's still the limit for this company. We're talking with Jason Moser, analyst with The Motley Fool. You, you see uh, companies like Google, and they just they dominate. I mean, year after year, it seems like their success grows. And with Amazon, same thing. How is it somebody doesn't step up to the plate and somehow challenge Amazon? Because, I mean, if I were to think of the second choice, I don't know where else I would go. I mean, there's Amazon. Amazon, what else is there? How, how come uh, somebody hasn't been able to, you know, undercut them a little bit to challenge them? Uh, I mean, and I would think if they don't have any kind of competition or challenge, then they're going to be in a position maybe not to be as customer friendly and make more money for themselves and the deals won't be quite as good. Well, I, I, you know, it's an interesting point there you make is if at some point or another do they get so comfortable in their competitive position that they sort of fall back on the service side of things. And I, I don't expect that to happen anytime soon simply because the, the company's stated mission is to be the most customer-centric company on the face of the earth. And, and so, you know, it's interesting to look at sort of the comparison between Walmart and Amazon, sort of the, 
the the Flintstones versus the Jetsons, mm-hmm. as I like to look at it. And and Walmart's <laughs> tried to step in there and do some of what Amazon's doing, but the problem is that Amazon got there first. They figured out how to crack that e-commerce nut first. And so, you know, when we look at Walmart today and we think about the fact that Walmart does probably four times sales that Amazon does in a given year, yet Amazon is essentially about twice as big of a company market capitalization wise. So the market's telling us something there. It's very difficult to go in there and not only build out that e-commerce infrastructure, but then to gain the trust of your customers to keep on coming back for more. And yeah. that's what Jeff Bezos figured out so oh, it's, early it's, it's on. Brilliant. I mean, you know, the thing that strikes me is I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not the techiest guy in the world, but I'm not a Luddite. And so I'll go online. And with Amazon, maybe it's because I've done it a fair amount, but it's boom, boom, boom. It's so easy. You a couple of clicks and, and there's no confusion. When I try to buy stuff from other, you know, whether Nike.com or Land's End or whatever, I mean, it's like you're trying to swim the English Channel. You're going to mess up somehow. They just don't make it easy for you the way Amazon does. And it seems like that may be one of the big keys to their success. It's just so customer friendly. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's interesting to note how uh, so many people will focus on being the low-cost provider, so to speak. And if you have the lowest prices, then that's going to be what brings people into your doors. And we're finding more and more that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, in this age of e-commerce, all of the data out there shows that it's not just low prices really anymore. It's ease of use. It's free shipping. It's things like that simple returns policies. And so that's where Amazon has really placed a lot of their bets, not only being a low-cost provider. You might be able to find low prices elsewhere. There's no question about that. But they are going to be the easiest way to get from point A to point B, and it's going to be the friendliest way to get from point A to point B. And you know that you're going to get that stuff sent to you in a reasonable amount of time. And if you don't, they're going to make good on it. And so all of those things put together are really, really what have helped Amazon make it to where it is today. All right. Jason Moser, analyst with The Motley Fool. You have a great holiday season. Thanks a lot. You too. All right. Take care. Hey, when we come back, um, why millennials are staying at home at a record rate. So stay with us here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the freeways? 7.06 the time. Talk Radio 790K ABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Friday to you all. Merry Christmas. So, Rob Marinko, you all set for the big holiday? Oh, not at all. No? No. no. Still a few cards to write, a few Amazon clicks to make? Oh, thank goodness my wife uh, writes the cards. Good. and uh, And I will buy a gift. Excellent. Well, sounds like you're you're sort of ready. <laughs> Rob yeah. tried to give me a hug, and I asked for a gift receipt. <laughs> she, he did, yeah. So, Randy Wang, um, <laughs> I have to say, you're probably the most opinionated sports guy around. I don't know of anybody else who would use the phrase Thursday night crap-o-rama football. Now, well, that, if, any, if you watched that game, you'd know it was a crap-o-rama. <laughs> hey, you had Richard Sherman of the Seattle Seahawks calling Thursday night football a poop fest, so <laughs> I'm just going with the flow. That, that's true. So to speak. So, and also, Randy, I noticed you actually predicted the outcome of many games, and based on my non-scientific, sir, I think you're right almost all the time. I'm right about 50% of the time, <laughs> like every other sports person no, out there. No, no, it's, it's better than that. Uh, hey, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've uh, you've probably heard about the ban the box controversy. Actually, Doug's talked about it a lot, and he's written about it in the Daily News. And it's a, it's a very polarizing controversy. The idea is, okay, you're the boss, you want to hire somebody, 
do you have a right to say, hey, uh, <laughs> didn't I read about that axe murdering? Uh, didn't you kill eight people in a cabin up in Yosemite and seven or eight years boss. ago? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and you want to know that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Hey, my, Oh my gosh, this is, we really pride ourselves on having a, a good daycare center here. So I couldn't help but notice all the child molestation convictions on your record. <laughs> Some people say the company can't ask those questions. It's not fair. People need a second chance. They've paid their debt to society. It's a very vigorous debate we're having. So we thought it would be great to have an expert on here, and Richard Rosenberg is a labor and employment law attorney who can uh, fill us in on this controversy, especially since the L.A. City Council has very recently weighed in. Richard, welcome. How are you? Good morning. How are you today? Doing great. Thank you so much for taking time on uh, your Friday morning to, to fill us in on this. Uh, as I understand it, the L.A. City Council recently voted, I think it was lopsided, like 12 to 1, in favor of what they call the Los Angeles Fair Chance Initiative, known as Ban the Box. And this ordinance uh, restricts the rights of employers in some way. Fill us in on, on what's going on on this front. Sure. So the city of Los Angeles City Council recently voted, it was 12 to 1, in favor of adopting what's called the Los Angeles Fair Chance Initiative for Hiring, which is also referred to by some as Ban the Box. The reference to ban the box is the fact that many employers have on their employment application a box, which is to check with a question next to it that says, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And the, employee, the applicant for the job is supposed to check the box, yes or no, and if the box is checked yes, then fill in what the criminal activity was. The city of Los Angeles ordinance will prohibit employers from having that box on their application, and in addition to that, restrict the employer from asking any questions whatsoever about an employee's criminal violation until after a so-called conditional offer of employment. All right, now that's kind of weird. So so what what do uh, what about this issue of people who say, "Well, it's not that bad for the employers. It's not that big a deal because once they they give the offer to somebody who they weren't able to find out that they were Charlie Manson, they can always still say no. So in that sense, is it is it really that big a deal for the boss? Well, it is a big deal because what happens is if the employer is inclined to say no, then the employer has to give the employee a written document explaining why it said no. And before it does that, it's required to go through something called a fair chance assessment. So let me let me explain what I mean by that. So what I what the ordinance says is that once an employer makes a decision uh, to deny employment based on some criminal record that the employer has found, the employer then has to write up a report explaining to the employee why the job why the employee is unfit for the job based on the criminal violation that the employee has committed. And then if the employee uh, receives that document, the employer is not able to fill the job for five days. And if the employee comes back and says to the uh, boss, well, I, or the job applicant, I think that uh, there's something wrong with your assessment, and here's why I think I am suitable for the job, then the employer has to give yet another writing to the employee. Uh, this sounds like such reason. a crock. I mean, uh, we're talking with Richard Rosenberg, by the way. He's a labor and employment law attorney with the firm of Ballard Rosenberg. 
Galper and Savitt in beautiful Encino. Richard, doesn't this seem so cumbersome and it's going to lead to, to litigation when the employees say, oh, well, I don't like the explanation you gave me. Uh, yeah, I had those 18 convictions on my record, but I think you're, you know, you're being unfair. Isn't that the road we're headed down? I think it is definitely the road we're headed down. This law is, is, is uh, designed to provide employees with a platform to file a lawsuit against their employer if they're not happy with the because uh, we don't have enough of the those. outcome of that discussion. And we well, we have plenty of them, as you know. <laughs> well, um, wouldn't it be just? Yeah. It, wouldn't it be easier if the city of LA just wrote a letter, just a memo, and put it out to all employers? We you're really not welcome here. <laughs> wouldn't that be just simpler? Rob, you're such a cynic. Well, 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 I do have to say this for those for those listening who are uh, more sympathetic to this kind of legislation. Huh. Uh, two things: no, number one, the idea behind the ban the box legislation grows out of a belief uh, by some that um, large percentage of the uh, population is going to be permanently barred from employment if the fact that they had a uh, interaction with the criminal justice system would forever preclude them from getting a job. In other words creating a permanent uh, underclass of employees who are unable to get a job because they had problems in their past. All the more motivation to stay out of trouble, as far as I'm concerned. Why put this on the employer? That's just ridiculous. Richard, is it, does it affect everybody? I mean, we're talking about government hires and private hires and big companies, well, small companies? Well, actually, this is something you'll find fascinating. Uh, the city of Los Angeles exempted itself from this requirement. No. <laughs> As, 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 why? as also, well, it doesn't say why, but they did. And they also exempted any state or, or federal government agency. Now, in addition to that, just so you know, it doesn't apply to every single employer, but it applies to any employer in the city of Los Angeles with 10 or more employees or any employer with 10 or more employees that sends employees into the city of Los Angeles for at least two hours or more a week. But, look, but so let, me back up, let me back up for a second, Richard. You're saying yes. that the city of Los Angeles passed a law that said all of you private employers in the city have to put up with this thing. You have to, you can't ask these guys if they've been convicted, and then after you make a conditional offer, uh, you can ask, but then you have to you know fill out forms in quadruplicate and probably get sued. And yet they don't impose the same requirement on themselves, so they're free to ask if somebody has a conviction, if they want a city job? That's exactly what they've done. That's insane. It's like the Obamacare thing. Remember a few years ago where, where the congressman who passed Obamacare just said, well, we're not going to have Obamacare. What if we get hurt? That's what if we need a good doctor really fast? This is insane. I mean, I'd be real curious to know what the 12 out of the 13, I think Mitch Englander was the only councilman who voted against this. I'd be interested in their explanation as to why in the world the city of L.A., they don't inflict this thing on themselves. You, you would certainly think what's good for the goose is good for the gander, for sure. Um, amazing. I, I might, gentlemen, I, gentlemen, I might also add there are a couple of other employers that are exempt from this requirement. Okay. And, the, and that is employers uh, who are required by law to get certain information about convictions, uh, certain kinds of uh, jobs. Uh, you're not allowed to hold a license, for example, if you're a teacher, unless if you've been convicted of certain things. So they could, they could ask for those kinds of jobs. Um, or if the employer is one that might be prohibited by law from hiring an applicant who's been convicted of a certain crime. Uh, like or the owner the, of a, uh, 
a daycare center, for instance. Well, yeah, what, and what about right? that, Richard? What about the daycare example that Rob brings up? If somebody's got three child molestation convictions and they knock on the door of the daycare center and say, I'd like to be an aide, I have a lot of experience with children, uh, are you saying that under this ban-the-box rule that the, the daycare owner may not ask until they've made a conditional offer of employment whether this guy's been convicted of a crime? I think there is an exception for child care where they cannot employ a person who has certain criminal record. And if that's the well, case, thank goodness they would probably, for that. probably fall under the exception. I might also add just one other. There's something else this law requires. It requires you that if you're going to advertise for a job, then you have to say in your advertisement that uh, you will not uh, uh, necessarily um, not consider applicants who have a criminal you're kidding. you've got to put that in your ad so are we yes. officially in russia here this is just so amazing i think rob's point is a good one it's so customer unfriendly in terms of businesses uh it's just insane but you know it, it's consistent with with what the mayor has been doing in terms of the sanctuary city thing i i mean it's just it's like we've tossed common sense out completely. I, I get the idea that there's a debate about dreamers and, you know, whether Im illegal immigrants help the economy. But for people to refuse to get on the whole, you know, Kate's Law thing and refuse to say, hey, if we the guy has felonies on his record, then we have a problem with sending them back to wherever they came from. It's, it's just like they've gone nuts. We're talking with Richard Rosenberg, a labor and employment law attorney with the firm of Ballard, Rosenberg, Galper, and Savitt. Richard, just to shift gears a little bit, where are things in, in terms of sexual harassment suits? seems like when the Clarence Thomas thing hit decades ago, everybody was suing for sexual harassment, and then it sort of it ebbs and flows. Is it back sort of in vogue, or what's going on in terms of, of that kind of employment litigation? I think California is a very uh, friendly uh, uh, location for lawsuits of, uh, brought by employees. And so uh, we still see hundreds and hundreds of uh, sexual harassment uh, lawsuits brought uh, each year in California. And most of you don't understand because it's not widely understood that out of every hundred lawsuits that are brought in the state of California, uh, less than three typically see the inside of a courtroom, meaning they go to trial. So the vast, vast majority of these cases do end up getting settled. And because the lawyers representing employees know that, those cases will be settled eventually most of the time. Uh, often they just file these lawsuits and then hang in there and see what happens. What about the okay. issue, what about this misclassification kind of suit? I, I've seen, it seems like it's turned into a political battle. You have Uber, and you have this amazing phenomenon where people can get around really cheaply. I talk about driverless cars. I mean, you've got a driver, but, but you don't have to drive, and it's amazing. So now Hillary Clinton and, and a lot of other politicians come along and say, oh, Uber's not being fair. They're treating them uh, like independent contractors when they should be treating them as employees. And so and when I see new filings, lawsuits, it seems like every day you see this tsunami of, of employment lawsuits where people are saying, oh, no, you, you aren't giving us our employee benefits. You know, you're claiming we're independent contractors. How do you see that phenomenon? in terms of the litigation trend? I think the litigation is only going to get more intense unless something happens from Washington to change all of that. And the biggest concern I have as a representative of employers is that even if the government in Washington makes big changes in labor policy, 
what we've been seeing, things like this local ban the box legislation that cities, counties, and some states are passing very employee-friendly legislation to try to get in the way of uh, the federal government. So, for example, in California, our minimum wage is higher than the federal law. And even though you may have read something about uh, the the overtime uh, rules got changed recently because a court issued an injunction against the federal rules that were supposed to take take place earlier this month, the state of California still has its own rules, which are much more aggressive than the federal law on who gets overtime and who doesn't, on who's an independent contractor and who isn't, on who can be an employee and who isn't. So these rules and these requirements are uh, just getting more egregious for employers to follow, more onerous for employers to follow all the time. It seems like litigation, especially in the employment field, but just sort of consumer issues in general, it's just been such uh, a virus in the last few decades, and and you try to stop it. For example, companies try to require arbitration. Be so much quicker and cheaper and easier. You don't have to go through the whole hoo-ha of a jury trial. And yet the courts strike down arbitration clauses. They say they're unconscionable. You have restrictions on class actions. Uh, you know, when people buy things, uh, then then they then they they sign forms saying you know we will arbitrate. We won't participate in class actions. But it seems like the legislature Legislators and the courts just won't won't stand up for these things. They instead they strike them down. I wonder, Richard, if you think now with some changes in Washington, we might get a little more sensible uh, of an approach in terms uh, of restricting some of this over the top litigation. If you're a business owner, I'm fairly confident that you're going to feel better in four years uh, based on the changes that the Trump administration intends to make, at least the things that it has announced. But if I can give you one example to go back to arbitration for a minute, there's very few people that really understand this. There's a federal government agency called the National Labor Relations Board. Its main mandate is to supervise union management relations in this country. And they've been around since 1935, um, dealing with the relationships between employers and unions and how a company can get a union. What's not really understood by most employers in the private sector is that that law also applies to any kind of activity that employees want to band together uh, to try to improve anything having to do with their wages, hours, and working conditions. And so this law says employees have a right to form a union, join a union, or to engage in other activities for their mutual aid and protection, as long as they're acting as a group. So the National Labor Relations Board under the Obama administration has been on a tear recently going after non-union employers who have no complaints against them, and then looking at their employment policies and procedures to see whether those policies and procedures might in some way interfere with these concerted activities by employees. And one of them that you just mentioned is, is arbitration. Many employers have an arbitration policy that says if you've got a beef with the company, instead of going to court, you're going to go to arbitration. And that could include if you had a claim Let's say that you should have been paid overtime and you didn't and you were part of a class of employees. The National Labor Relations Board has routinely struck down those arbitration agreements as being offensive to this idea that employees can band together as a group to assert claims against their employer. All right, Richard Rosenberg, Labor and Employment Law Attorney with Ballard Rosenberg, Goldprint Sabbath. Thank you so much for sharing uh, part of your holiday season with us. So I hope you have a great holiday and uh, you take care of yourself. 
Glad to be with you this morning. Thanks a lot. 723 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. I think he's right, Rob. I think uh, we're going to see a breath of fresh air maybe out of Washington. This oppressive tsunami of regulations we've been stifled with over the last eight years or so. Uh, Things things are going to, I think, change on, on all those fronts. Well, it's hopeful if you take candidate Trump's word that regulations was one of the things on his hit list that are just strangling uh, a private uh, business. We'll watch for the tweets uh, out of Washington, <laughs> D.C. All right, uh, Royal Oaks and for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, uh, your dog a little hyperactive? No problemo. Cannabis for your canine. Do not miss that. Stay with us. And yeah, let's find out how things are looking on the freeways with Bill Thomas. <laughs> 729 the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year to you all. So this is a heartwarming story, Rob Marinko. Even for a puppy, Cat Donatello's Black Lab Austin was hyperactive. After experimenting with natural supplements on her older dog, Brady, Donatello slipped the puppy a special biscuit. It just kind of <laughs> took the edge off of him, she recalled. Uh-huh. Marijuana for the dogs. What well, a wonderful okay. idea. All now, right. So it says here, she she said, I started spending my winters baking dog biscuits. Mm-hmm. She tinkered with the recipe before coming up with just the right formula. You know, you got to give it a taste while you're making it. Oh, needs a little more oregano, you know? <laughs> oh, too much. Let's try it again. Hey, Fluffy, I, here's some kibble fluff. Oh, it's all gone. <laughs> I can see that happening. Yeah. You know, you could have unintended consequences. Sure. You know, the burglars, you got the guard dog, Rex, attack. I'm not really up for that, dude, you know. Rex is on the couch with the remote watching <laughs> Cheech and Chong movies. Exactly. Right. I can say from personal experience, I have been to many a party back in the day where I sat down, I whipped out a joint, and a, somebody's dog jumped on my lap like, yes, please, yes, please. Give really? Me. There's dogs that love it. There's dogs wow. that don't like it, but there's a lot of dogs. That, look, when you're a dog, it's pretty much the same thing every day. You could use to, you could choose to uh, loosen it up a little. Do they make bongs for dogs, I wonder? I Who knows? Now, it says here, Treatable's founder, Juliana Carella, has seen sales explode like wildfire hmm. over the last two years. So... I think this is an investment opportunity. We should get Jason Mosley, uh, the Motley Fool, and uh, see if uh, we can invest in this stuff. Although maybe it's technically illegal. I don't know. The Time 731, Talk Radio 790K ABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre and Rob Marinko with the headlines. 739 The Time, Talk Radio 790K ABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Friday to you and Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. It's going to be a fabulous week, I think, for most everybody. Uh, It was a pretty good week for uh, Sheriff uh, Leroy Baca, just concluded. Uh, So you're familiar with the basic facts. Several years ago, folks are saying, a lot of abusive tactics in the uh, the sheriff's jail, people getting beaten up. And so the FBI decides, you know, we're going to give a cell phone to an informant. He's an inmate, and he's going to be on the inside and report to us. While the sheriffs figure out what's going on, they allegedly intimidate an FBI agent, threaten her with arrest, and they they move him around, obstruct justice, etc. What, nine or ten sheriff's folks from the Tanaka, number two guy on down, are convicted. They're behind bars. They're going to jail. And now the big guy goes on trial. Leroy Baca, and the jury comes out yesterday, 11 to 1, not guilty, which is a hung jury, mistrial. And so now, what's going to happen next? Well, we've got David Berger, L.A. County Deputy, uh, a district attorney, speaking as a private citizen, not a representative of the DA's office. David, welcome to the program. 
Good morning. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Royal Oaks, for the disclaimer. Yes, uh, these are my own personal views. They do not reflect the per- policies or views of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Very good. Uh, so, David, were you surprised by this uh, lopsided 11-1 uh, vote uh, in favor of the sheriff yesterday? Uh, yes, I, I was a little bit surprised, frankly, given the uh, the uh, media bias against law enforcement. Uh, this was a jury that took their uh, responsibilities very, very seriously indeed. Uh, 11 to 1 for not guilty is de facto, de facto a not guilty verdict. The sole holdout, according to one of the jurors who commented, uh, a lady by the name of Sherry, said that, um, that the one juror was biased against Sheriff Baker. And she also added that Baca's name could not be linked to the crimes. These are direct quotes as reported by the uh, Los Angeles Daily News, a reliable source. Another juror who didn't want to be named said, I don't feel there was any evidence that showed Sheriff Baca was guilty. So in the light of those comments, I'm not surprised now uh, by the verdict um, I, I think that the U.S. attorney now has a very difficult task of uh, eating a little bit of humble pie and admitting that uh, they were wrong to go forward with this particular prosecution. As you know, they had originally offered Sheriff Baca a deal uh, to plead to a charge for a six-month sentence. Judge Percy Anderson rejected that and said, not good enough. And that's an interesting point because a lot of people took the view that Judge Anderson was perhaps uh, himself uh, expressing some bias against the sheriff. And maybe uh, what we now see is the sheriff, the judge was basically saying, look, U.S. attorney, uh, if your case is as strong as you say it is, then let's have that case. And if it's full of BS, I want to know that, too. Well, you know, we're uh, talking with David Berger. David, you made a really interesting point. I hadn't heard these reports about the, the jurors' comments yet, and it's fascinating to me. Now, uh, a lot of folks said, well, you know, where there's so much smoke, there has to be fire. All of these other people were going down. They're, they're behind bars. How could the big guy not be involved? And yet, as, as we heard the secondhand reports of the, of the evidence rolling out over this you know, couple-of-week trial, it didn't seem like there were any smoking guns that the U.S. Attorney's Office had against Leroy Bach. I mean, most people probably thought to themselves, how could he not know? And yet, apparently, this jury just felt that, that there was no there there in terms uh, of the case. What do you think is going to happen next? I, I mean, my, my uh, guess is that the prosecution would always say, even if they you know, get clobbered 11 to 1, doggone it, we're going to go again. And don't judges generally go along? I mean, especially after just one trial, if it's two or three mistrials, it's one thing. Wouldn't you guess that it will go forward? Or do you think plea bargain talks will break out? Well, uh, I think as it relates to these particular charges, first of all, yes, the prosecution does have the ability to ask the judge, ask the judge, I reiterate, to allow for a retrial. But ultimately, the judge makes that decision. There are very few judges uh, that would allow a retrial faced with an 11 to 1 verdict based on the comments of the jurors and his knowledge of the evidence that was presented. Now, he may say to the the U.S. attorney, well, uh, you know, do you have anything else? What other evidence do you have that might suggest a different outcome? 
And that would raise the question, well, if you had that evidence, why wasn't it presented and is it even admissible? Um, I, I think this case, and I, I, I don't only think it, I hope it, I think this particular case is over the... Uh, remember, there is going to be a new uh, U.S. attorney following uh, the inauguration. Um, let's not lose sight of the role that politics plays in a lot of these matters. This, in my, my personal opinion was a very politically motivated prosecution. Um, you also have the rather alarming news that uh, Peter Eliasberg, the chief counsel of the ACLU Southern California, has claimed responsibility uh, for this, uh, this show. Uh, he said his organization's work prompted the FBI investigation. That, again, is also a, a direct quote from the L.A. Daily News. Uh, kind of shocking to see that these kind of politics are at play in a prosecution because prosecution should, prosecutions should be completely uh, insulated from political consideration. Well, it's been a fascinating drama, David Berger, because, uh, my gosh, uh, will the second trial coming up? And if there is a second trial, then the sheriff gets to talk about his Alzheimer's and dementia issues. Uh, what a soap opera. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. 790 Talk Radio KBC here. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Let's check in with Bill Thomas, see how things are looking on the freeways. 806 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this free speech Friday. And folks, are you in for a treat? In a moment, we're going to be joined by Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent for Inside Edition. If you'd like to chat with Jim, 1-800-222-KABC. But also, because it's Free Speech Friday, we're inviting your input on a fascinating poll that was just taken. The most annoying words or phrases in the language, Rob hmm. Marinko. And, uh, where's uh, where's McIntyre in that list? Yeah. I don't see Doug on the no? list, oh. but here it is. Whatever, whatever, oh, that word is the most annoying phrase. 38% of Americans say that's it, top of the list. Also, no offense, but is right up there. That's 20%. Um, you know right. Now, I'm not sure that that's really a phrase, you know right, but that's 14%. And I can't even, that's 8%. And huge, people don't like huge, but whatever is up at the top. So, folks, if you have a phrase that is totally annoying, 1-800-222-KBC, cast your vote. We'll get you on the air. But first, we're going to be chatting with Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent, Inside Edition. Jim, Merry Christmas. How are you? Whatever. <laughs> See, that's that's the top of your list. So, so here's the deal. That's yeah. another one. <laughs> that's true. Or it is what it is. Uh, I, 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 I like that one, but I think many people absolutely hate it. So, I like direct speech, but I'm in a minority because apparently I'm one of the few people who still reads. <laughs> well, speaking of reading, it's funny you mentioned that, Jim. You know, Rob Marinko, Jim is not just chief correspondent for Inside Edition. He's no? an esteemed author. Yeah. Ah. And he has written a book called The Last Day of My Life. And unless I'm mistaken, Jim, I think it would be available as a last-minute Christmas gift at Amazon.com. Would, would, you, <laughs> would you agree with that? Royal, you you are my agent forever. Uh, we've got the, you, you know, I, I'm getting a cut on every sale. Well, you, I, we haven't actually cut. cut a deal, but anyway, it's a fantastic oh, book, goodness. folks. The last day of my life, Jim Murray, 
so so check it out. So Jim, you you've been working yeah. on some uh, some pretty intriguing stories. One of them I like is uh, well, poor Jaja is gone. Uh, yeah. What I mean, I think she was even ahead of George Hamilton, way ahead of uh, the Kardashians, famous for being famous, and now at ninety nine she's passed on. Yeah, and well, she you know she was an actress early on, but she's probably mm-hmm. more famous for being married nine times and and for being herself on so many TV shows. And you're right, she was she was famous for being famous long before Kim Kardashian, and uh, she passed away at 99. She just two months shy of being 100, and she was very glamorous in her youth. I mean, just beautiful and and quite a fixture on Merv Griffin show and all these various talk shows and. Um, you, you know, her, I, I, we went up to uh, her husband's home uh, after after her death, and there was a news conference, and, and he talked about the last moments. And the next day, he was kind enough. I, I wanted to, to talk to him one-on-one, and he gave me a tour of, of their of her bedroom. And I've been to their house many times. We did, we did a tour on Inside Edition of their home when it was for sale a few years ago. And, and, you know, some people considered it morbid and perhaps in poor taste. But I have to tell you something. Um, Prince Frederick von Anhalt was married to her for 30 years, with her for 35. And Pretty amazing yeah. record considering the other, what, seven or eight husbands who preceded him. Yeah. And, and I really have to defend the guy because, you know, people said, oh, he was a gold digger. He had his own life. And look, all I can tell you for sure is... He was with her to the end. Mm-hmm. He, he was with her for 35 years, and, 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 and you know, she had, she had a number of medical issues, and she was in a hospital bed, but his bed was right behind hers, and there was a mirror set up so that he could see her at night if she raised her hand, and, and she was facing, he, he had a Christmas tree up uh, the day before she passed away. She loved the Christmas tree, and there was this giant portrait of the two of them in their heyday that she loved to see, and, and you know what? He was there for her to the end, and I, I really have to give him credit for that. I respect that a great deal. And I've always enjoyed hearing him. You know, he's a character. He's a character. I, 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 Rob, I don't know if you've heard him oh, much, yeah. but and you, you, so you've seen him over the years, Jim. One of the things that I noticed years ago when the Anna Nicole Smith thing came up oh, and there was some suggestion that. as to whether Prince Frederick von Anhalt was the father of the Anna Nicole Smith baby and so on, some some reporter says to him, well, Prince, you could be the father of, of the baby, but you're married to Zsa And the prince said, sometimes I'm a bad, bad boy. <laughs> so Royal, I was with him when we gave him a lie detector test. Oh, really? that. Yes. I, I was with. I was sitting next to him. And they, they put okay. all the wires around him. And he was going. I swear, I was with him. Blah 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 blah. blah. And, and you know, he was a character. He was, and still is a character. But but you, you can't take away from him the fact that that he he was with her and he was devoted. And they didn't have a night nurse. He was the night nurse. And you know, being a caregiver is a tremendous responsibility. So if he went out for lunch or dinner, who cares? I mean, he was still with her. And, and, and it was wonderful to see. You, you know, I saw tremendous emotion in, in him when he was talking about missing her, because the fact is, this is who he's devoted his life to for 35 years, and now that's gone. And, 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 and I got a sense of he doesn't know what he's going to do. Yeah, we're talking with Jim Moray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition, and, of course, it airs daily at 4.30 p.m. on KCAL 9, and his Twitter handle, 
at Jim Moray. So, Jim, you know, we, we make fun of people like Zsa Zsa Gabor for saying, and you know, she's famous for being famous. But in addition to really being stunning, I mean, she was gorgeous, as you say. She was a personality. I mean, she wasn't just a stick that stood there as a pretty woman. She was on not only Merv Griffin, but a hundred other shows. And oh, for sure. she was a staple for years. And she had personality and verve, and she was just watchable. So it's, it's sad. But, you know, 99, she had certainly a good long life. Amazing life. I mean, she was married to Conrad Hilton. I mean, she, you know, she, she, she definitely sought very wealthy men, and uh, you know, as did her sisters. And uh, look, she was she was uh, entertaining, to say the least, and watchable, and fascinating, and totally unlike anyone you knew. Which is why I suppose she lasted so long. You've got to be smart to be in the public eye for 40, 50 years and still be relevant and have people care about you. Even if it's only for a few minutes, you think, yeah, you know, well, when you and I go, I don't know, I'll, I'll think about you, you'll think about me, but we'll be alone. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned sisters. I guess she had a few, but Eva was the most famous. And, of course, yeah. uh, Green Acres, you know, the Eva Gabor, Eddie Albert combination. You, it's hard to top that. <laughs> See, Jim Murray, you've been all your age. Yeah, I, I know. Next, age, next thing you know, I'm going to be uh, whistling the Andy Griffith theme song. <laughs> I read about those shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks, Rob. <laughs> thank you. You're out of this conversation, pal. <laughs> so you're also Jim Murray uh, reporting on. It seems like every time you get on an airplane, something wacky happens. You know, we saw the lady who was just dragged off. The, you know, the 300 pound lady dragged down the the aisle, in the middle of the aisle on the airplane, and then some. Some moron is annoying Ivanka Trump because he has a hard time with, with Donald Trump. But uh, you did a story on uh, Richard Marks having some uh, harsh words for his airline about how they handled the situation. Yeah, he and his wife, Daisy Fuentes, were, were going from Hanoi to Seoul on their way back home, um, uh, South Korea. And um, there was a person on the flight, a passenger, who began pushing and kicking a flight attendant and uh he was one of the people who helped subdue this guy, and, and uh, you know, they, his wife was tweeting about it, and it, apparently it, this went on for four hours because the flight was, was, was long. And, and, and what Richard Mark said, there's one picture of him holding a rope because they had to tie him up, and there was a photo of one flight attendant with a taser, but according to Marks, they didn't know how to use it, and he says the Korean Air, the staff was ill-prepared, and caught off guard and korean air said look they did everything according to protocol but the fact is you and i know that you you, you almost can't watch the news on any given week without seeing some incident in the air so uh, <clears throat> unfortunately it's, it's it's incumbent upon all of us to kind of be the watchdogs nowadays and and uh, you know richard marks is, is best known for his love songs in the eighties and he's still a great performer and you know, but it just shows you that no matter who you are, you got to be ready to jump into action. And and fortunately, he was, and he was able to document it. Well, and that's right. I mean, when you think about it, everybody kind of likes to laugh about this situation, all sorts of wacky stuff in the air. But there's not much room for error up there because uh, if something gets out of hand, if there's violence or something, you know, you're thirty five thousand feet up, and so it's. Uh, I think he has a right to be a little concerned if they weren't handling it just right. I mean, we saw this story about these uh, these YouTube guys uh, who were speaking Arabic the other day and uh, agitating the passengers, and they're, you know, they're fighting back and forth. He's saying they were racist passengers, and the, and the passengers are saying, no, he was stirring it up. He just wanted a few a million, guys known few for million hits on yeah. YouTube. The guy's known for being a prankster. He, yep. he claimed to have put himself in a piece of luggage and shipped himself uh, on an airline. And, of course, there's, you know, a lot of this stuff is done 
for the shock of it on YouTube. You don't know if it's real. I suspect that that was a prank. Uh, there's no indication that, that they were doing anything other than trying to get attention and maybe even get thrown off the plane. It's hard to say. Uh, you know, we, we don't really have enough information on that, but I'm suspect of that story. The, the Richard Mark story is, is something really that all of us are concerned about because, you know, for those of us who travel a lot, there's a fine line between being paranoid and being hypervigilant because you don't want to be in a situation and be wrong because there's just no room for error, as you say, at 35,000 feet. We're talking with Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition. I didn't hear the angle about the guy putting himself in the in a suitcase. I mean, wasn't he worried about freezing to death? I mean, well, like those guys that get in the wheel wells and they want a free flight from Australia to America and they show up frozen to death? If you look at the way the video's cut on YouTube, it shows him getting in the suitcase and then coming out in the baggage terminal. There's no <laughs> indication that he was actually on the flight. You know, it, the, I suspect it was clever editing and, and a prank. Could be, could be kind of fake. So, Jim Murray, I know you're also working on uh, kind of a serious story here about the uh, killer of the uh, bridal plasty star. Uh, what's going on on that front? Oh, very, very sad story. This is a woman, 36-year-old nurse, who was allegedly killed by uh, a 34-year-old nursing student, a man who um, her family thought was a friend of hers, and uh, he apparently confessed to the family that they were having a romantic relationship. She's married. Uh, th this is what happened. The woman went to a party on Saturday night. Um, she, her family said she would often go out and party, even though she was married. She'd be out with friends. She, she uh uh, called her husband at 2.45 saying she was going to get something to eat and come home and never did come home. This is 2.45 in the morning. Um, the family, uh, very upset, very concerned. Uh, and, you know, the police generally, w when it's an adult, a missing person case, they, they often won't do something for the first 72 hours because they simply don't know if there's any foul play involved. If there's no indication, they're not generally going to move on it. And so the family, be they, they became... Uh, amateur sleuths, and they went to the restaurant where she was last seen. They got the surveillance tape. They found the woman leaving with the man who said that he did not leave with her, but the tape shows otherwise. Then they invited the man, his name is Jackie Rogers, uh, over to the family home, and without his knowledge, they videotaped him, and they asked him questions, and, and they found inconsistencies. And mm -hmm. based upon that tape and the surveillance tape, the police uh, arrested him, questioned him, and he confessed to police that wow. he hit her over the head with a hammer seven or eight times, and he was arraigned yesterday. And I have to tell you, I talked to, to two of, of this woman's sisters. Her name was Lisa Marie Nagel, and her two sisters, uh, Danielle and Michelle, and one of them was was literally crying on my shoulder. I mean, I, I, I held her just to say, look, I, we just... We're trying to help, and, and she, it, it's horrible to see families go through such grief and loss and, and question why these kind of things happen, and now they just want justice. They, they said they can't even look at this man. They were questioning him because they just felt like something was wrong, and they didn't believe Isn't that amazing that this would all come tumbling out because of their assertiveness to, to get involved and question the guy? It, it, it shows you. Look, you, you, you generally know your family better than anyone else, and, and, and they just didn't believe that she was, she was running off. You know, she, she had a family. She had a husband. They knew something was wrong. They couldn't prove it to police, so they, they, started, they started doing some investigation on their own, and thank goodness they did because this, is, this happened just, you know, Sunday morning, Saturday night, and, and within a week's time they now have somebody arrested and arraigned, and it wouldn't have been that way but for their 
vigilance and determination to get some information to the police. Wow. Hey, Jim Murray, I want to ask you uh, about the the Leroy Baca case. Not everybody knows, uh, Rob, that, that Jim is a lawyer. He's also a dentist and a brain surgeon. Did you I, know uh, that's that? incredible? I'm, but I'm not an I'm not an expert on on. Is this just Sheriff Baca you're talking about? Yes, exactly right. Okay. No, so, uh, so be gentle on me because I haven't covered this in a long, long time. Well, I'll, I, I I'll do I, my best. First, for the record, I have to say, okay. Jim Murray is not a dentist or brain surgeon. Oh, but, but I am he, a lawyer. But he is I a lawyer. lawyer. He is a lawyer. <laughs> so I was just wondering if you were kind of as surprised as the rest of us. Eleven to one yesterday, not guilty vote. Only one holdout uh, to vote. Uh, Sheriff Baca guilty. It seemed like going in, everybody in the world knew he'd copped a plea. He'd said, yes, I, I committed a felony. I lied to the feds. I'll take six months in prison. The judge said, that's not enough. So they went to yeah. trial. And all this evidence comes in about, you know, the big guy knew everything and the jury votes 11 to 1. I, just just wondering if it was a little surprising to you that it, that it rolled well, out that way. Now, have you ever met Sheriff Baca? Oh, yeah, many times. A charming and, and guy. I, that, see, I think that that served him well um you're right even though he didn't testify as usually these high-profile defendants didn't still i think your people see him as a father figure he was their sheriff for what 15 uh, years yeah and and i think you know there's the idea of if if you're a good guy you'll get the benefit of the doubt even if it doesn't seem rational i I think that this is one of those cases because you know the perception i think for most people is that he was a good guy a decent man and a good sheriff and and he had the people's interest at heart doesn't mean what he what he uh, uh, you know pled to wasn't horribly wrong, but I, I I think that that good credit may have influenced the jurors. I you know it's hard to say because you, you we talk about the police and you certainly do not want the police to feel like they are above the law or or have a different standard. You want them to to be beholden to the law just like we are. Um, but but I think people give police deference in a lot of cases, even even in this case where, where as you say, he copped a plea and everybody went in saying, wow, I wonder how long the sentence is going to be. That was the only question that most people had. Um, yeah, I, it is surprising, frankly. It is because it does say to a large group of population that some people are treated differently based upon their position in life or their office. And, and I think that that's potentially dangerous. Although, as I say, every time I've met Sheriff Baca, he's always been very gracious, charming, seemed like a decent uh, stand-up guy. All right, Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent for Inside Edition. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Hope you're going to be able to take some time off, uh, do a little traveling, uh, see family in the next week or two. I'm actually off today, and I'm talking to you because because you're such a good guy too. And well, I would thank you. No, that you can't know be that. that. Yeah, I think that's payback for the uh, you know <laughs> the Jim Jim no, wrote it's the not. last day Royal, the last day of my life, folks. Wait, I want people <laughs> yeah. to know, Royal. We call you often on Inside Edition to be a legal analyst, and you always are so gracious. You always say yes, and your insights are terrific. And whenever I can return the favor, you know I will. I, I, I happen to think the world of you and. Rob, you're lucky you're working with this guy, even though he's named after a housing development. Well, thank Royal you, Oaks. thank you, Jim. But what, you know, you could ask me for dental advice too, because you know I know about root canals and oh, and you have stuff. beautiful teeth. <laughs> there you go, Jim Murray. You have a great Christmas. You too. Bye bye. Right, take care. Bye bye. The time, ladies and gentlemen, eight twenty four. Talk Radio seven ninety K A B C. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, uh, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, McDonald's value meal suit you might find unbelievable. Stay with us. Now it's time to hear from Bill Thomas on the traffic.
Rob Marenko, do you have a lozenge? I, I feel like I need a, a recall, <laughs> yeah. uh, but no uh, kidding. wonderful voice. Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks and for Doug McIntyre. Hey, the Kings play here today at 5 as they take on the Dallas Stars with Dick Nixon and Daryl Evans on the call. It's Kings versus Stars today at 5 on the home of the Kings, 790 KABC. Royal, it's uh, Nick Nixon. Nick. Oh, Nick. Nick Nixon. Dick Nixon yeah. was so, the president. So it's not Dick it's Nixon. No. So if no. I had said... Uh, the Kings play here today at five as they take on the Dallas Stars with Nick Nixon and Spiro yeah. Agnew. Would you have called me on that too? Probably. No Kings go. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very good not for bad the record for folks, last second. Yeah, I was going to say, folks, you need to know that was Randy. That was not Rob. Uh, Nick I mean, Nixon, I happen to to know, is not a crook. Well, plus it's spelled differently. Nick Nixon's last name is N I C K S O N. But ever since the first time I saw it, every time I see it, uh -huh. I, I have to think of the of the, <laughs> the disgraced Republican president. Um, speaking of disgraced people, I, I'm <clears throat> one because we're going to bring Jim Roop on here, and I, I have a big apology to make to to Jim. Uh, Jim, thank you for joining us again on on the LAX uh, business. Um, uh, but before we do, I, I have to say, you know, we talked earlier, and you gave a wonderful report, and then. I think you were off the air when I was telling the story to um, Rob Marinko that you and I worked uh, together on the O.J. Simpson um, robbery trial there in Las Vegas years ago. You, right. you, you recall that. I and do. we would travel around. We'd, we'd stay there in Vegas. And I, I mentioned that I stay at the Golden Nugget. And then, and then Jim, I said, I said to Rob, I said, well, of course, Jim Roop stayed at the Mustang Ranch. And um, we've been getting calls. I mean, lots and lots of calls. Is it true? Does Jim Roop really frequent? What you get, what, you're getting calls what? They want to use my frequent flyer card? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe their competitors trying to lure your business away. No. Bottom line is I have to apologize Good. for sullying your reputation. Of course. Well, you never have to apologize to me. <laughs> yeah, we've, we had several calls, uh, uh, Jim, and, and let's let's just set, set the record straight. It was not the Mustang Ranch. It was the Bunny Ranch, which is... Uh, look, it's a victimless crime, right? Exactly. It's not like you know, there's anything was... for you to be embarrassed about. Right. But, well, of course, that's, you know, you weren't there. I was just a joke. I was just making it all up. Thank goodness my entire parish would be mortified. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim Roop, you are out and about in the vicinity of LAX and the other uh, clogged travel arteries. The huge travel weekend for Los Angelinos. Uh, kind of a nightmare, I would think, for, for some travelers. What's going on? Right. Well, we got some good news from Mary Grady, who's the spokesperson at LAX, saying that it is significantly improved, at least the issues are. Still very, very busy. About 238,000 passengers anticipated today. Whoa. And sometime before noon today, they expect about 91 arrival delays, 47 departure delays, and at least four cancellations, uh, arrival cancellations, and at least one departure cancellation. So it's a lot better than it has been. Still busy. The lines, of course, can be just gigantic. Although, I mean, aren't are there some things? I know TSA gives advice now. That aren't there some things you can do, to, you know, to kind of speed things up in terms of you know the toiletries and and also, I guess there are these things you can sign up for speed pass type deals. Uh, TSA oh, yeah. TSA pre those kind of random, isn't it? Yeah, well, TSA pre is I, I'm I, I belong to that. Although a lot of people are getting savvy to that, so. Uh, the, the lines there are also getting longer. But the issue with that is when you sign up, there is a scrutiny process. You have to go to an interview. I had to go to two. Mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> um, and then you have to give your fingerprint and all that stuff. And it takes, it takes several months uh, to really get approved. But once you are, it can speed things up significantly, getting in line with people who aren't 
uh, who don't travel that often, and they're in those long lines. However, uh, there are still a lot of people who, who obviously they don't travel that often, and they don't really get a lot of the rules, so they don't have their uh, toiletries uh, in, in bags. They have, two, they have more than three ounces of liquid. Uh, they're bringing items on that should not be brought on. Uh, you know, water for one thing, and then uh, gifts that are wrapped. Uh, there are people that are not really savvy, so it kind of holds up the line a little bit. But for the most part, at least things at LAX today seem to be better than they have been. Well, that's great. I, I, I would think, though, that the travel might be up a little because as the economy improves over the last few years, I know in really down years, people say, well, I'm not going to pay for an airplane. I'll just drive the, the two, three, four hundred miles. So I would think for that reason to be up. But it sounds like it's not too congested, huh? Well, I'm not saying it's not congested. It's just better than it was, say, Wednesday and Thursday, it, uh, especially Wednesday after that uh, suspicious package incident that went down. That was my really first trip to LAX, and that was a mess. So it is easier today, still very, very crowded, a lot of congestion, a lot of crowds. Uh, people aren't taking public transportation. Some are taking advantage of that Uber carpool thing that they have for the holidays. Lyft and, and Uber have, if people are going in the same direction as you, uh, th- they can carpool you together. So that, that helps a little bit. Uh, there's obviously taxi cabs, but uh, the shuttle services aren't as busy as probably they should be. People are still want to get in and get out of their own cars. However, uh, again, it's, it's a little bit better than it was, but you're still going to run into crowds today, and you're going to run into crowds all day. They do expect that as the day progresses, Crowds will increase because there are people still working today. When they get off, that's when they're going to head to the airport. All right. On the scene there, Jim Roop, you have yourself a great Christmas. Thank you. Happy holidays. All right. Take care. 946 The Time, Talk Radio 790, KABC, Royal Inn for Doug and Bill Thomas with a report on the freeways. Nine fifty two the time. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. That's snowflake. It's such a derogatory, derisive term. Well, you know, since when did that happen? For people who just want a safe space, Rob Marenko. Yeah, you know? that's a horrible, scary world, Royal. You need to mourn. Wasn't that amazing that Columbia, Yale, all these colleges <laughs> after Trump won, they canceled tests. You know, <laughs> we, we know we know how you feel. If you need some uh, time off from your midterm, we yeah. got you. We'll <laughs> exactly. hand you a puppy. <laughs> exactly right. Hey, you know, I said a minute ago, uh, we were talking to Jim Roop. I said, well, the economy's better. You know, maybe people are more willing to pay a little extra and travel by air. But uh, the millennials, you know, they don't seem to be getting the message about things improving because millennials are are living at home to a greater degree uh, than at any time since, according to this study, since 1940. It's less offensive to live at home. Well, I guess it's a safe place, and it's certainly less expensive. And mom will do your laundry. Exactly. So millennials, (laughs) they say now the stats are are that they are the biggest generation in history, bigger than the baby boomers and Gen X and so on. So you're talking tens of millions of people, and about 40% of young Americans in the millennial category are living with their parents or siblings or other relatives and this is the biggest percentage since 1940. Apparently 40, it was 41% back yeah. in 1940, and that was sort of the official end of the Depression. I mean, it wasn't really over. We needed that World War II that's, kickstart. Uh, that's a lot of sex people aren't having. Well, it's pretty amazing when you think about the, since the economy, as I say, should be getting better. But it was down the percentage of, of, of kids in that age range, basically in the 20s, 
uh, it fell down to only 24% of them living with their folks in 1960. And now it's crept up, crept up continuously. I'll tell you why. Why is that? Because there are so many jobs that millennials just won't do that they'd rather live at home and be unemployed because they're too good to go work at a burger place. Well, why would that be? Why would this crop of 20-somethings be different from the Gen Xers or the Gen Ys or the baby boomers? Participation trophies. (laughs) You may be right. Well, no, I think think Randy makes a great point. You know, there has been a sea change in attitude. I remember when I was in school, we had spelling bees. And spelling bees worked by having everybody stand up, and as soon as you screwed up, you sat down. At the end of the day, there was one winner. And 34 losers. Yep. And as my kids marched through school, I would ask them, well, honey, are you spelling bees? This Spelling bee? What's that, Dad? <laughs> there were no spelling bees for any of my kids a- at all. And I think it's the idea is we don't want losers. And as you say, Randy, everybody gets a trophy. But so if you don't have any losers, you also don't have any winners. So nobody has any ambition. And, yeah, I can live at home for cheap and mom will cook for me and clean for me until I'm 35. Sounds like we should run Randy for Congress. Well, look at the past few years. You've got schools that will no longer have a valedictorian because, you know, you're kind of uh, insulting those who didn't finish on top. Well, you could have 327 co-valedictorians to Uh, make everybody feel real good. 9.55 the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC.